it's basically raising money from the community and instead of like Indiegogo or another one of those Kickstarter Kickstarter yeah instead of just getting something a product or a perk the community gets shares in your business it's really big in the UK it's really big in the US and it's growing really fast in Canada it's an awesome way to bring the community into your business and to let them know what you're doing, why you're doing it, and to allow them to be a part of an earlier startup company when they're raising money. There are two key steps to business success, financing and building your audience. You may think the two goals are separate, but they don't have to be. Traditional financing gets you money for your business. But crowdfunding gets you money and potential customers. That's exactly what entrepreneur and whiskey lover Rachna Hukmani figured out when she started her reward crowdfunding campaign for Whiskey Stories. Rachna also shared the media strategy that led her to be featured in Bloomberg News, Forbes, and Michelin Guide. Starting from episode number 73, as part of the crowdfunding series, you gain insight from women entrepreneurs who have been successful in raising capital through different types of crowdfunding. Head on over to christinashahli.com forward slash her CEO journey and subscribe to the podcast app of your choice. Raising up the bar of financial knowledge among mission-driven women entrepreneurs is a must, not an option especially in today's environment where you may need to raise financing as part of your business growth. With that said, don't forget to tune in for the upcoming bonus episode series on strategic debt financing to grow your business. In the next few weeks, in addition to Thursday episode, I'm going to release three weekly bonus episodes on Tuesday. In this bonus episodes, I will share how mission-driven women entrepreneurs like yourself can scale your business growth using strategic debt financing. Each bonus episode is short, but it will give you the important information you need to know to feel confident with your decision to either include or exclude debt financing from your capital funding strategy. Don't forget to subscribe and make sure you have Her CEO Journey episode automatically downloaded to your favorite podcast app. You're listening to Her CEO Journey, the business finance podcast for women entrepreneurs. I'm your host, Christina Shahli. If you are new here, a big warm welcome. If we are not connected on LinkedIn, please reach out and say hi because that's where I hang out and share my business finance tips. If you have been listening to this podcast for over a year, I want you to know I appreciate you. My podcast won't be around without your support. This is a free weekly show where my guests and I want to inspire you to balance between mission and profit to achieve financial equality through your business. If there is something I haven't covered yet in this podcast that you are eager to learn more about, I want to hear from you. Record your question using the link in the show notes. Simply record your name, business, and your question, and I will feature you in a bonus episode. This week, my guest is Kara Sam, the founder and CEO of Bucha Brew. Bucha Brew makes raw, delicious craft kombucha. Her business started when she basically flip-flopped into her local Whole Foods market with a child in one arm and a bottle of homemade kombucha, left it with a lady at the customer service counter, and guess what? To her surprise, four hours later, Kara received a call saying Whole Foods want to list Bucha Brew on their shelf. I invited Kara to this crowdfunding series because she had been successful raising capital twice through equity crowdfunding, which is more like a mini initial public offering or IPO. In equity crowdfunding, you don't reward the funders with products or services, but they actually have an equity investment in your company. Let's find out Kara's CEO journey. 
Kara Sam, welcome to her CEO journey. Thank you so much for having me. Congratulations for closing the second round of your equity crowdfunding. Thank you. Especially during this time when it's the pandemic, it's a crisis, nobody is really raising money, and then you are successfully crowdfund for your business. That's really awesome. We were really nervous, yeah, to to launch it during the time, but I was so happy with the community outreach and it was really amazing to see how many people wanted to support a local business during this time. This is why I want to talk to you. Okay, Kara, before we dive into equity crowdfunding, let's start with your journey. Yeah, so I started Bucha Brew back in 2016. I had just had my first son. I went on a family vacation to Hawaii. I found out I found this local vendor in a in a farmer's market who was selling kombucha and I tried it and he was explaining all the benefits to me and I was I was really excited to find something that was low in sugar. It was high in antioxidants. It was really good for digestion when you have a young baby that can that can be a, an important piece. Yeah, so then I started drinking it over there. When I got back to Vancouver, I I, I came and I was looking for some local kombucha and I, I couldn't find any. And so mm. I started making it at home and friends and families tried it and they liked it. And somebody, I can't remember who, they were like, you should just take it into Whole Foods. So I was like, okay. And I had this like <laughs> terrible, bot. like it was, I literally just had Bucha Brew written on the front, no other information and took it up. And then, yeah, they emailed me back like a few hours later and they're like, yeah, we'll take it, but you have to change a few things. Oh my God. Yeah. (laughs) That's pretty cool. You just walk into Whole Food and then say, here's my product. Give it a try and see if you can sell it. I was so naive back then. It was uh, a blessing. (laughs) Yeah, it is. Um, I was still brewing in my home at that time. So I obviously faked it and I was like, oh yeah, we have everything, you know, ready to go. But yeah, so in six weeks, I I got a commercial kitchen. I went into a shared space and I researched how to do all the labeling and all the things that needed to be on the bottle. And we started, that was, they were one of my first customers. Were anybody helping you during the six weeks? How many litters did you even make for them? That's a good question. I haven't been asked that question before. I think we did four cases for each store. And then I was like, it's going to sell really well. So we got to like keep building the inventory. One thing I really like about, I like about kombucha is that the shelf life is really long. I, How long I was, is the shelf life? For us, we do eight months. This is great. I can build inventory and then we can just pull from inventory. So Whole Foods brought us on. We, I, I realized that you can just literally walk into a grocery store and ask them, if they want to carry your product and they can say yes or no on the floor. Mm. So I started hitting up all the grocery stores that I could in Vancouver. And yeah, so so we had, had fast growth. We did some farmer's markets and really got a lot of community engagement early on at the farmer's markets, which were really awesome because back then, not a lot of people knew what kombucha was. So we had to spend a lot of time educating on the benefits and the the properties and, and why you should be drinking it. So face-to-face was uh, is always the best way, I feel, to really connect with people and get them on board. So yeah, that was that was kind of how we got going. For me, I, you, you mentioned challenges. For me, I think the biggest challenge early on was deciding how to spend my time between my family and the business. Because once Bouchibrou was up and running, my first son was one. And it was the March that we launched in Whole Foods. And then I also found out that I was pregnant with my second. Mm. And so I, it, was a, it was a bit of a, a TSN turning point for me. I was like, do I keep going? Do I just keep it small and do farmer's markets? Or yeah, try and make that decision. What made you decide to grow bigger instead of just staying in the farmer's market? I felt like I didn't really have a choice. Every single farmer's market, it was everybody was asking like, where can I get this? 
other than here? Cause we were there only once a week and what stores can I buy this in? And, and every time we went into a store, they said, yes, pretty much. We were pretty early, early on. And so I just, and then I had other stores phoning me for the product, which is very, I learned later, very rare in uh, consumer packaged goods. It still is really hard for me to say no when somebody is like, we want your product. So I kind of was just going with the flow. So I, I definitely didn't set out to to build this massive company. I, I didn't even know I was building a company when I started, I, starting a company when I started really. I was thought I was just going to be kind of like the juice thing, you know, like kind of like a side hustle. I would have my, my kids and do this on the side and and make a bit of extra money. But yeah, it's obviously turned into something a lot different. I am curious the part that you approach whole food, because normally what I heard so far, people started with the farmer's market, more the direct consumer approach before you go to a bigger distributor. Because they order and then you have to fulfill the demand from them. And then normally that's require you to finance the order beforehand. So what happened there? To be honest, I just, I just had no idea. I'd never been in consumer packaged goods dealing with grocery stores before. I didn't have a business plan. I didn't do any market research at all. I, I didn't use a marketing firm. I just, I, my brother and I drew my label on a napkin at the local (laughs) down at the beach. We have 10 names. How do we narrow it down? It was just like, yeah, that one sounds good. Let's pick that. It's definitely not a typical consumer packaged goods launch story. And, And I think that it benefited me in a lot of ways, but there was a lot of things I wish I knew ahead of time before jumping in. I think the speed to market was really important for me back then, although I didn't know it. But now we have a lot of really great retail partners that if we weren't in there first, we we would have had no chance because now the kombucha industry is is really saturated and there's lots of big players, but those those didn't exist back then. So it was really easy for us to get into, into the different retailers. I think right place, right time also plays a big part in it. What about in terms of financing the first order with Whole Food? How did you do it? And then did you get any help at all? Or is it just you and your brother? That was supposed to be the idea. And then he met a girl and moved to (laughs) Australia. (laughs) So he was like, see you later. (laughs) Yeah, thanks, bro. (laughs) I know, totally. It was all done really inexpensively. I had some bottles. Do you know what a kegerator is? So it's a fridge. It's like a mini fridge with taps on the top. So I poured the entire first order from a kegerator. So I just had the bottles and I just like pulled the tap and then we capped them all by hand and labeled them all by hand. And so it, it was really inexpensive to get going. And then once things started flowing and we were in the commercial space and we needed to be getting pallets of bottles and I needed some some equipment and bigger stainless it was really important for me to use stainless steel tanks which can be quite expensive I got a small loan from my dad and a small loan from my partner at the time it was about twenty thousand dollars to get going that was friends and family friends and family in the beginning. And then once it was very clear that, that things were growing and, and I kind of, in March, I'd made that decision to really turn it into a business and, and Which try, year, try March, and grow. 2016. March 2016. Okay. Yeah. In August, I ended up getting some VC money from a pretty small venture capital firm based out of the UK. And they were looking to expand on their healthy, good for you, that part of their portfolio, they ended up doing a convertible note for $450,000. Okay. $450,000. Yeah. US or Canadian? Canadian. Okay. But the caveat was that I had to find and buy my space, my facility. I ended up finding the space where we're, we're at now in Delta. And back then it was around 
it was just over $400,000. So I had to spend 400 on the facility and then I had the extra 50 that I could use towards the project. It was, it's very um, non-traditional. It was just there. I didn't have any other bank loans or anything like that. So it was their way, I think, of, of having a, something behind. If the business doesn't work, at least there's this property. Did they convert the note into equity later on? Yeah. So on my first round with Front Funder, they converted. Oh, just for my audience that don't really understand about convertible note, Can you explain a little bit what is convertible note? Yeah, so a convertible note is a loan, essentially a loan with the option for the investor later on to convert that loan into equity, so mm-hmm. into share, shares of in the company. A lot of earlier stage companies and investors choose to go down the route of the convertible note just hmm. because it, it gives a little bit of an extra. I guess safety net because hmm. if they decide oh the company's not moving fast enough or the goal has changed or or things are different than the, when the initial investment happened, the investor can choose to keep it as a loan and then you just will slowly pay off the principal and plus interest and then they'll end up as long as the company doesn't go bankrupt they'll end up <laughs> getting their money back if the startup. Is doing really well and moving really quickly, like what, how we were. They can choose to convert at a later date, at a specific price, which is usually a discount of what your current raise is. So okay. they they get a better deal because they invested way earlier, but uh, it's still not as good of a deal as if they would have just done straight shares way back whenever they invested. The interesting part. For me, in your story so far, you said that you never think of this as a business. Yet, it seems that the action you took, even like went on to get VC money from UK and structure it as a convertible note. That is so far, at least people that I interview, it's unheard of. <laughs> they normally go to straight private equity route without any convertible note. Where did you learn all of this? I was super lucky. My the father of my children is in that world, so he made some connections for me, and he taught me. He's a lawyer as well, and he was working in in corporate securities, so he taught me all, a lot of the lingo and what things I should be looking for and he helped structure the deal. And so he, he was really, really helpful to sort of guide in that, in the direction. And he also thinks outside of the box. And so to go the normal route, we could have tried to do that, I think, but I, I think the way that we ended up going was beneficial for me, for, for Boucher Brew. I know that in 2019, I believe that was a big year for you. Yeah, I mean, I feel like all the years have been have been <laughs> big. <laughs> yeah, and and had had their challenges and the excitement. And in year one, we did just over a hundred grand. In year two, we did over three fifty. Year three, we were just under a million. So it was it was super fast, super fast growth. But twenty nineteen was definitely a lot of really more 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 solid deals came through and and we we increased our doors by quite a few. <laughs> oh yes, from three, 350 to 1,500 accounts. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> so how did you do it? <laughs> to be honest, it, we kind of just like threw a bunch of stuff at the wall to see what would stick and it just, it all did. I don't know how. What did you throw on the wall, Kara? <laughs> like share over here because I'm pretty sure a lot of my audience wants to understand because they're probably throwing things on the wall and then it didn't stick. So what did you throw on the wall and it stick? So we we ended up getting Sobeys Warehouse uh, mm. for Western Canada, and that was a big one. That that one that we we'd been working on that for I don't know maybe six months. That came through and that was really exciting for us. We went from about I don't know, 30 stores to over 350. 
Sobeys has always been a, a really special one for me because I remember pretty early on getting a call from a Safeway in Vancouver and them just being like, Hey, is this Bucha Brew? We want to, we want to bring your product in. I had to do like three double, double takes, like <laughs> Safeway. Like, is there, is there another Safeway that that's not the big chain? Like, is it save way? Like I, I was just, <laughs> so <You were confused. laughs> I was like, I didn't know that they could do that. And, um, so we, we started in that one store and this, this manager was amazing. And she, she, she brought it up on the manager's call with a few other locations. And then I had a few other ones phone me and then kind of just kept growing from there, that account. And then, so much so that head office ended up reaching out and, and saying, Hey, do you want to, do you want to bid for the Western Canadian warehouse business? And I think they only reached out to maybe eight companies and only, I think four companies were going to get the listing. So really grateful for that opportunity right in the beginning. And, and then we worked really hard pounding the pavement, getting into every single Safeway door that we could. And yeah, so we launched with Safeway Sobeys. And so that's Safeway Thrifties, Foodland, also Freshco. The other big one at that time was we also got a Western Canadian listing with 7-Eleven. So that launched in March of 2019. And that happened super fast. It, we had the meeting in January and he wanted to launch like two weeks later. And I was like, let me just, I think, I think maybe launching in the winter might not be the, the best thing for kombucha. So he was like, yeah. okay, well we'll do it in March. <laughs> so <laughs> we were like, okay, we got to scale production like pretty seriously to, to manage that account. And yeah, and it, it, it went really well. We had a follow-up meeting with them in November and he was like, basically said, if we want to go national, we can. It's just the press of a button and he's happy to do it. So in November, we went national with 7-Eleven. Yeah. So those are the two really big ones that took, really jumped our, our account, the okay, number of accounts. Kara, that's only two throwing something <laughs> on the wall. <laughs> yeah. We, so that's, been, that's pretty strategic. Well, yeah. And then we also, we got, we got a new distributor. We started working with Horizon Distributors, which is a natural distributor out of BC. And they brought in a lot of account, a lot of new accounts that uh, we weren't in before. So yeah, I, I'm, I'm grateful that you're really pumping the house strategic butcher brew is because I feel like <laughs> most of the time we're just flailing and... <laughs> <laughs> It doesn't seem like you're throwing like a hundred things on the wall and then only like two things stick. It seems like you're throwing like a few and then it somehow it works. Okay. Now here's another thing because you grew from 350 to 1,500 accounts in a year. And then your revenue also grew from 350 in the second year to a million in 2019. Now, the first thing that came to mind is that capacity. How did you even manage the capacity to serve all this significant growth in your business? How do you even serve the clients with all the orders? I could send you pictures of how creative we were in our facility. <laughs> did you have a machine? Because I know with the uh, VC money that you received in 2016, you bought a warehouse. But did you have your own manufacturing facility, your processing plan facility in 2016? Or what happened there? Yeah, so we, we bought the facility and then we turned it into a manufacturing plant. So that took about six months. So yes, yeah, so we did all of our manufacturing out of that space. With kombucha, so many people ask me why why I didn't co-pack and why we're doing our own manufacturing. And it's really hard. It's, it's impossible to co-pack a real living kombucha. If you do the fermentation in your facility and then you ship it to a co-packer, it, it just financially doesn't make sense. We bought a, a bottling line. We bought, we have our own canning line as well. And then um, we have our awesome team in the facility that, yes, is brewing and, and packaging the kombucha. We definitely got really creative with the space. We've since taken over two more of the warehouse spaces. So our initial space was about 2,200 square feet. 
And now we're in about 8,500 square feet with some offices. It's grown. Definitely the the space. We needed more space. It was just full-on production in at, at Butch Brew HQ. Did you feel any cash flow or did you experience any cash flow issue at all with such a tremendous growth? Yeah, big time. It was really stressful and it was really challenging to to keep up with our raw materials and to make sure it's always been one of my my really important pieces is to make sure that all the orders are going out the door and that quality is where it should be. And so we had to to really focus on on cash flow and and make sure that that what we were saying yes to that we were going to be able to fulfill that was one of the reasons why we decided to do to go with front funder and do our community raise because i'd been talking with with a few other vcs things were just taking a really long time and we we were kind of in this weird spot of like we weren't really a startup anymore but we weren't a full on you know manufacturing major corporation the startup money we we'd kind of passed that point but we weren't quite big enough for traditional vc funding because they like to have closer to between four and five mil in revenues before they'll look and and they want to invest bigger amounts than what we were looking for so front funder i i heard about it actually i was at expo west and i went to the very good butchers booth and I started talking to them about it and and what their experience was and they had a really awesome experience with it and so I decided to reach out and it was amazing dealing with the team at Front Fender it was they made it really easy for me to understand all of the documents and all of the back-end paperwork that they're doing that they were doing for due diligence and and writing out the subscription agreements and and everything it was really plug and play. We had a couple phone calls, which I, I liked where they, they were kind of, that's where they got the story and how much I wanted to raise and why I was raising and, and, and the backstory of Butcher Brew to add all that in to the shareholder agreement and just to, to create all those documents for us. It was simple to get going. They said it would take maybe eight weeks to, to launch. I think we were about six weeks. They had a lot of great advice and they set up events for us to go to and different ways that we could connect with their investor community and bring my investor community into it. From your perspective, what is equity crowdfunding? Mm -hmm. Good question. It's basically raising money from the community. And instead of like Indiegogo or another one of those... Kickstarter. Kickstarter, yeah. Instead of just getting something, a product or a perk, the community gets shares in your business. It's really big in the UK. It's really big in the US and it's growing really fast in Canada. It's an awesome way to bring the community into your business and to let them know what you're doing, why you're doing it, and to allow them to be a part of an earlier startup company when they're raising money. Because prior to this, the opportunity to invest in early stage companies, it was almost non-existent unless you had a friend or a family member that, that had started a company. And so they've made it accessible for the public to be able to, to come in and, and really feel like they're part of it. It's like, it's like Dragon's Den for the public. <laughs> <laughs> but okay. So do you have to present? You don't have to, but it's really great if you do. Okay. I had to write an overview of the company, all the key points of why we were raising, what we were raising for, where were we spending the money, how long it was going to last us for. And, and it's really interesting writing that versus writing a business plan for venture capital money because VCs, they get it all the time. They know the questions they have to ask. They know the information that they need. Whereas when you're pitching to the community, a lot of times you have have investors who know what they want, know what they're asking for. But a lot of times people, when we sent out our last, the survey after the last raise, it was, they were investing in the team and they were investing in the heart and they were investing in the values. And they were really excited to, to have a chance to be able 
to invest with their values and be aligned in that. So it's a little bit of a different conversation than pitching to venture capitals. From the investor perspective, when they get involved or they invest in community raise or crowdfunding for equity, they basically know the risks, right? Because there is a downside of this crowdfunding for equity. Of course. Yeah. And Front Funder does a really good job of making people aware of what the risks are and that it is a risky investment. You have to answer a bunch of questions about yourself and about your financial. They don't think that you're financially stable enough to make the investment. You either have to go through additional paperwork or, sorry, unfortunately, we're not able to allow you at this time to invest. I don't think that that happens very often, especially because the amounts that that you can invest go as low for us. It was as low as $250. At the end of the day, for a lot of people, that's not going to make or break the bank and and Mm. to determine like if you're going to make that investment. So for... A lot of people, when they invest in this community race, they invest on the value that the company you or the team of Bucha Brew are creating. I guess their expectation is very different than a normal private equity firm. Is that right? I think that the expectations are, are actually fairly similar. They want they definitely want to have a return on their money. They know that it's a longer term investment and that they're not, it's not like investing in, in the public market where you can just sell your shares whenever you feel like you want to sell your shares, your, your shares are in until a liquidity event happens. And we're us, Boucheru and Front Funder are both very clear about that. The, what the, the terms of the investment are. Yeah. So people are doing it to support especially in the last raise, I felt like a lot of people were doing it to support a local business, but they're also doing it because of, there's the option at the end of the day to make some money. Help me understand or unpack a little bit. From the company perspective, how can the investor make money out of this equity crowdfunding? Is it when you sell the company, when you purchase doing like some kind of share buyback? Is that how the investor can make money? Uh, yeah, both of those. Or the other one is it, like the Very Good Butchers just uh, went public. You can do an IPO and that's that's another way that these early stage investors can see a return. But those okay. those, those kind of are the three, the three main ones. If we did a, some sort of like a bigger VC raise down the road, then they might want to buy out some of these shareholders, but that would be down the road. When I listened to equity crowdfunding and started researching, that to me, that is very similar to mini initial public offering or IPO, right? Mm -hmm. Except I think the process is faster and the regulation is not as tedious and not as expensive as an IPO because you are not required to do a full-blown perspective. At the same time, this is an equity investment are you required to show the valuation of your business to the public? You don't have to, but it makes it very challenging to raise money when, you, when, you, when you're not open about those things. We didn't put that, that information on the Front Funder page, but if anybody emailed us and they're like, hey, we want to see your financials, then we send them the last year's financials this year's financials and our projections. When you raised your money this past April 2020, which was like in the middle of the pandemic, what is the challenge that you face in building the valuation? Because valuation is created or built based on future assumptions. How did you even prepare one during this (laughs) pandemic when nothing is like certain? Yeah, it's definitely a challenging piece of the conversation. We worked with Front Funder to try and, and figure out what the, the valuation was. And it helped because we already had a valuation from our first round. And so that kind of gave us a starting point. And in order to get that valuation, we, we took 
trailing six months, leading six months, and we kind of put them together, got an average, and then checked out what the what was happening in the industry. And there were some, thankfully, there were some industry industry trade sales where like Pepsi had bought Kavita, Coke had bought another kombucha company from Australia. So the specific numbers weren't there, but there was rough data of of how many times revenue those companies have been bought for. And so that mm-hmm. gave us a really good benchmark to say, this is what we think we're going to be doing in the next year. And these are what these companies sold for. So that's how we came to our valuation. Yeah, just to, just as long as you can you can prove that, then people are happy with... I, I haven't had anybody contest our evaluation or say like, wow, that's, you know, that's way too low or way too high. Why do you believe a projection is required in equity crowdfunding? Because people want to know where you're going and how you're going to get there and how long it's going to take. And so mm-hmm. it's really... I think it's really important to have that piece of the business plan set out as best as you can. I, I have a really hard time with projections because the future and who knows what's going to happen in the future. There could be a massive pandemic. And so it, it, it's, it's definitely a hard one for me. I hadn't really done like sat down and, and really done projections before we went on front funder, partly because we were growing so fast that it, it like it, it would have been impossible to, to try and, predict that. But it's also, it's a really great benchmark now for the company. I feel like we've, we've done a lot and we've changed a lot since the early days and things are, are more organized and we have a lot of systems in place and we have budgets now and we use our, our projections to help with production and with how much raw materials we're, we're buying and, and how much we need to scale at, at what time within the facility. So it's not just for the investors. It's, it's really for, for us as well to, to help sh- make sure that we're running smoothly and efficiently. But I also believe that the financial projection is likely help you to identify what is the purpose of this crowdfunding, right? Because it, I think it will give you a snap, well, not a snapshot actually, but how are you going to use the fund that you raise from the crowdfunding? Yeah, that as well, for sure. That's one of the most common questions that we get is uh, what are you doing with the money and, and where are you spending it and why are you spending it there? And how are you, like when as the years go or the year goes on, are you spending it all at the beginning? Or are you spacing it out throughout the year? And and who's helping you decide to make these these decisions as well? So the first race that you did in 2019, that is to increase the manufacturing capacity. Is that it? Yeah, that's right. It pretty much went strictly to operations. And then what about what you did in 2020, this past April, which is you just closed in June? This is really exciting for me because we're we're spending almost all of it on sales and, and marketing efforts and there's never been extra money to spend re- like on a, a marketing strategy and, and really follow through with it. We hired crew marketing partners to help us with our packaging when we switched over to cans. That was really important for us to make sure that our cans really stood out on the shelf and that mm-hmm. we could communicate with people through the can and that design. And I think they've done a really amazing job with that. And so to actually use this money for community outreach and to really like bulk up on the sales strategy and, and get that going is, is really exciting. It's the, that's like the fun part for me. <laughs> and then I think you also receive a 55000 grant to export to Japan UK and South Korea. Am I yeah, right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> really exciting. So part of this raise is going towards that. So Canex covers 75% of the spend. And then... What we, is it? Canada export? Uh, yeah. And then we cover the 25%. So part of the raise was to cover that 25%. We were supposed to go to Japan in March and the UK in April. And there was a big big plan this year for all of that, which we've had to not put on hold, but definitely it slowed things down for sure. Um, Mm -hmm. Just not being able to go there and and see people face to face. And, but it's also, it's been good because it's, it's made people think differently about 
these types of meetings. And so there's been, you know, I, I'm, as everybody knows, lots of Zoom and uh, <laughs> different different kinds of communication. So. Okay. So Kira, I I haven't asked this and I think this is an important question that I want to ask you. What are the important steps to run a successful equity crowdfunding? You can't be afraid to reach out to the community, I think is the first one. I was very timid in our first raise in the beginning of not wanting to clog up people's feed with our, you know, like with the information. So we were only sending out like a couple of times a week about the raise and then the rest of the time it was about Bucha Brew. Um, so, so don't be afraid to, to really be proud and, and to show like we're raising money and this is what we're doing with it and we need your help. When you have a clear message like that, people get engaged really quickly. For this, this round, I, I had all of my newsletters and all of my community outreach and as much as I could, I, I had planned in advance. So we decided in the beginning of April that we were going to launch this round and we ended up launching it in the beginning of May. So it went really fast, all the prep work for that. And I was doing it all because my team was helping on just like damage control on the sales side and, and production and everything just because we were like really in the middle of coronavirus. And so yeah, just planning out for me this time, having a schedule of, of what we were posting and when was really helpful. Creating all the content ahead of time, so making sure that you're having that you have engaging photos or videos or different ways of, of reaching out to people, and then building your your newsletter database as fast as possible, and and getting as many people on that list as you can just just to, to be able to reach more people. And then for the last round, webinars were really awesome for us. It, it was, I like talking and seeing people in person. And, and so obviously we couldn't do that, but webinars was, were kind of the, the next best thing. And, and we got a lot of traffic and, and a lot of inquiries through the, after the webinars. How did Front Funder help you in terms of promoting your campaign? Anything that we posted on social media, we always take front funder and they almost always repost for us. They do call outs on LinkedIn um, and Instagram. I think they have over 4,500 people on signed up within their, on their platform. And so when we launch, they send an email out to all those people saying we launched and then follow ups throughout the, the campaign. The, they set up uh, two of the webinars that I was on. We did some interviews together and, and that sort of thing. Do you believe like the regulatory portion in the equity crowdfunding, should other founders see that as a downside? I think that every company should do it regardless of if they're doing equity crowdfunding or not. It's amazing to have all of that information all in one place to be able to go back and see. Like you have to access that, that stuff for, for lots of things other than raising money. And so, so to have it all organized in one place, it's a huge benefit for a company, regardless of, of raising or not. Do you believe there is a certain stage of company who should consider equity crowdfunding? Good question. I, I wouldn't recommend raising really early stage in for a, a CPG brand, but as you're growing, we have traction and you can get backing from the community, then I think it's definitely something to keep in the back of your head as you're growing. And you'll know when when is the right time to raise. I, I didn't want to raise too soon because then the valuation would have been too low. But then you can't leave it too late because then your cash crunch really... Have you built a community before you raised the first money in 2019? Community has been so important for Bucha Brew from the very beginning. And I think that that's another big reason why we were able to grow as fast or get as many accounts as possible. We're always out there talking to people and organizing events and, and bringing and supporting other people's events. The City of Vancouver account with, with all the concession stands was a huge one for us for community engagement because there were so many people that 
that would go into the cities and parks and be like, oh my gosh, Kucheru, and send us photos or whatever. That's one of our our key values is regenerative community, and we want to we want to keep growing. They're meaningful connections. It's it's not just like, hey, thanks for buying our drink. See you later. And we want to keep engaging with those people, and we want to keep talking and keep our finger on the pulse. I guess you touch on regenerative community or regenerative sustainable business. Mm-hmm. Is that just about community, or there is like a bigger meaning out of that? There's definitely a bigger meaning, and I, I have such a, a hard time really honing in on my explanation of what regenerative business. So it, it's starting really with the core people within Brew. and I I've always been a huge proponent of of autonomy and and giving people the freedom to exercise their personal creativity and to find. To, to really like work on what their what they feel their purpose is. I want to try and create a place where the work-life balance is is almost like a non-conversation because it sort of feels like you work when you go to work, that is your lifestyle. And that's what you want to be doing that day. Because we're helping the community become healthier because now they're drinking a kombucha instead of a, a pop or a sugary juice or whatever when you're really like focusing in on people's purpose and what they really want to bring to the world it changes the mindset of your employees and and they're not really employees anymore they're they're advocates for the business because it's what they believe in it's like their day at work has been relaxing because it's what they want to be doing with their time for our core team we have i, I do unlimited vacation so people can, they can take as much vacation as they want throughout the year and they'll get paid mm. the same amount. Um, oh, so it's giving, I want to work for you. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's giving people that freedom of choice. And, you know, we've been in business for four years now and I've never had a problem with it. If anything, I feel like they, they don't take enough vacation. Mm. I, I'm like forcing my, my sales team to just like, yeah, you need to like, Go. yeah, take a day off. Mm-hmm. We all totally. want freedom. Yeah. So when it's restrictive, it becomes hard to enjoy what we're doing. Yeah. Now, okay, one critical value of yours is also about radical transparency. Mm-hmm. What does that mean to you? Well, it ties back into that that last piece of the conversation that we just had, but just being really open with mm. the, the public and front fund going on front funder. If you're not transparent with your business and with what you want to do, it's, it's, it's very easy for people to see that. And, and so for me to be transparent about the state of the business with my investors and with my team members and, and say, yes, we can, we can throw this party because it has the benefit of X, Y, and Z, or no, we can't unfortunately do that right now because we're in a super tight cash crunch. We don't have the money to spend on that. And, and this is why. Instead of just saying yes or no and then moving on, I, I think that it makes a really big difference in, in the communication and having open communication of, of what our process is and, and how we make the kombucha. Do you have to report back to the funders after the campaign is closed? Do you need to give them like some kind of monthly, quarterly or annual reporting? I think it's quarterly that we're supposed to report. But my goal is to report to to send out some sort of communications once a month to, to the investors. I know they're my investors and I'm so grateful that they've decided to put their hard earned money in in our company. And that just makes me feel so much support from the community, but the investor group is a a huge opportunity for us to reach out to the community and to have them reach out to their friends. And that's part of the regenerative piece is like, if you're, if you're saying a positive message and really giving people the chance to get involved with that, it makes them feel really great to be able to say like, Hey, to their friends, I invested in this awesome company. They're promoting health and wellness and trying to like make this community, bring this community together. 
And so you should choose them instead of somebody else. That's huge for us, word of mouth. And, uh, and really bringing these super fans into, into within the company and, and making them feel like they have a voice as well. Kara, it has been great. Where can people find you and can find Bucha Brew? If they want to invest, especially. If they want to invest, this last round yeah. is closed. So unfortunately, oh, okay. wow. yeah, they'll have to wait to the next, if there is ever a next one. I'm hoping oh, that oh, you never I can know. Never say never. a bit of a break yeah, from yeah. raising money. We just got a, a warehouse listing with Save On Foods. So we're now in all Save On Foods across Canada. Yeah, uh, which is really exciting. Yeah, Safeway, Thrifties, Foodland, 7-Elevens. Go to 7-Eleven. It's so easy. There's probably one like right around the corner. Everywhere. Right? Well, right? Not, in the, not in Ontario though. <laughs> there, There's like 50 of them in Ontario. I haven't so seen there, one in Toronto. But, like it's really hard to find like a 7-Eleven. Yeah. Like, maybe because I don't live downtown. Maybe oh, downtown maybe. there are a lot, but maybe mm-hmm. in the suburb, it's not so much. Mm. And then I think your website is buchabrew.ca. Yeah, that's correct. Yep. And then you can find Kara on LinkedIn. Yep. K-A-R-A. Uh, there you go. Yeah. It's been a tremendous conversation here, Kara. Thank, Thank you so you. much. Thank you so much. It was, it was really great chatting with you. I always feel so strange on, on podcasts because I want to ask questions back and I want to find out more about your side. And I think that what you're doing for, for the women in finance and women in business and, and really growing awareness around that is really, really admirable and, and, and really amazing. So keep doing what you're doing. Thank you so, so much for having me. Thank you so much for joining me here every week at Her CEO Journey, the business finance podcast for women's entrepreneurs. Head on over to kristinashahli.com forward slash Her CEO Journey to subscribe for this podcast. And don't forget to tell other women entrepreneurs that this podcast is available for free in the podcast apps of their choice. Until next time, and let's continue to grow a business that fuels the life that you want to live.